Glad you all are here. Hey, if you haven't already, why don't you grab your Bible? If you don't have your own Bible, there should be plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And why don't you turn with me to the passage that that Jay just read in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we'll start in verse 22 as we continue on in our uh, ongoing sermon series in Matthew's Gospel entitled The King and His Kingdom. We've seen two examples of Israel's rejection of their king, and this morning we see a third example of the nation's rejection of Jesus as king. So we'll start in verse 22. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in together. So would you pray with me, please? Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit now to come. We ask that, Spirit, you would come and speak through me in a powerful way, that my words would not be my words, but that it would be your words, that they would be words that are faithful and true and reflective of of your very word, which we have in our laps, the Holy Scriptures. We are so grateful for them, that you have preserved for us the life and ministry and teachings of your Son, Jesus. And we have much to learn uh, from him and his teachings, and even from those who um, uh, scorned him and rejected him and eventually crucified him. Lord, we know that that was a part of your master plan to bring salvation uh, to all the nations. And so, Father, we rejoice in that plan, and we ask now that you would help our hearts to be in tune with you, that our ears would be willing to hear, our eyes would be willing to see. And we ask that you would be honored and glorified, and that the name of Jesus would be made much of. And it's in, in, in his precious name we ask it, and all God's people said together, amen. Well, this morning, we find that the enemies of Jesus namely the religious leaders known as the Pharisees, we see that they are at a pivotal place in Matthew's gospel. This morning we'll see the Pharisees, the leaders of the nation of Israel. We'll see that the people will eventually follow along. They are at the point of no return. The point of no return, this phrase, the point of no return, originally was an an aviation term. In fact, it described the point at which a plane's remaining fuel would be insufficient for a turnaround and a return trip to the original starting point. Hence the name, the point of no return. However, it also came to describe, for instance, the point at which when an aircraft would taxi down the runway, right, it gains a speed and it has to get to a, a certain speed and it must become airborne or else, well, it crashes, right? It's the point of no return. Take, for example, Charles Lindbergh, his heroic and quite dangerous takeoff in his famous plane, right, the Spirit of St. Louis. The year was 1927. There was uncertainty about the plane's uh, capabilities of of taking off because it was taking off on a roughly 5,000-foot mud-soaked runway, and of course it was fully loaded with aviation fuel. Charles Lindbergh himself later wrote that he narrowly, in his takeoff, uh, cleared uh, some telephone wires at the end of the runway by, in his estimation, 20 feet or less. And so he had reached the point of no return. Friends, this morning we'll see that the spiritual leaders of Israel are going to reach um, a critical point in which they can't turn back. There is no reversal that is possible. The point of no return in their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. So far, what we've seen in chapter 12, Jesus has restored the Sabbath. He had two verbal fist fights, if you will, with the Pharisees, two controversies, both relating to Jesus' practice uh, on the Sabbath day, and he 
restored the Sabbath in his words. We also saw a few weeks ago um, that Jesus withdrew from the Pharisees. He ministered to the crowds and he reaffirmed the scriptures. Well, this morning, we're going to see Jesus refute the scorners. He's going to refute the scorners as he has round number three, a, a, a verbal boxing match with the Pharisees, the third one in Matthew chapter 12. And it's going to culminate in their complete rejection of him to the point of no return. And so let's look at the text together, starting in verse 22, as Matthew begins with the act of the merciful. We see Jesus' compassion and mercy on full display in verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. If you were with us last week, we left off with Jesus having a confrontation with the Pharisees. He withdraws from them. And we are told in just a verse earlier that that the crowds uh, gathered around Jesus and that there were those who were ill and sick and he healed all of them. Well, now Matthew sort of picks back up in verse 22 and he gives us one particular instance, one example, if you will, one particular healing, that of a demon-possessed man. Now, Matthew's account here in verse 22 is brief. We don't really get the details other than the fact that the man was demon-possessed. And because of the fact that he was possessed with a demon, he was blind and he was mute. He could not see what he was supposed to see. He could not say what he was supposed to say. Matthew emphasizes, rather, uh, the Pharisees' response to Jesus' healings. However, it is interesting a couple things. First of all, Let's just sort of not run past the condition of this man, right? It's easy for us to do that because Matthew doesn't emphasize it. However, just pause for a moment and think with me how horrible it must be for a a person. This person was not a believer in Christ at this point in time. He had come to the point in his life, and we don't know how, that he had come so entwined that he had allowed a demon to possess his mind in his body. And that this demon, this evil spirit, had so influenced this man, so hindered him, so crippled this man's functionality that that he couldn't see and that he couldn't speak. I mean, friends, how awful a state this must be. And Jesus sees this man, and he's merciful and compassionate, and he heals this man. It's an amazing miracle. Another point that's interesting before we move on. Many commentators suggest that Matthew includes these details, that this man is not only demon-possessed, but that he's demon so demon-possessed that he can't see and that he can't speak. And it's suggested, and I think worth noting, that this man might actually be a picture of the, the Jewish people at that point in time. Right? Jesus encounters this presumably Jewish man and He can't see. He's blind, right? And he can't speak. And in a very similar way, the Jews, in particular the Jewish leadership, they were like that. They were spiritually blind to the reality of who Jesus was. They were unable to say, Jesus is Lord, because of the work of Satan in their lives. And how terribly ironic, if this is the case, as we see the accusation that they make against Jesus here momentarily. 
And that leads us to our first truth for today. Friends, Jesus is a merciful Savior. He is a merciful Savior. And friends, we who bear His name should be as well. If we are Christians, if we are little Christs, then friends, we should be like our Master. We should seek to mimic the mercy of our Master too, as He cared for human beings made in the image of God who were crippled by the work of Satan. Numerous times in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus had compassion, that He had compassion on people who were sick, who were hurting. And it's worth pondering this for a moment. Do we have compassion like Jesus had compassion? Do we have mercy as his followers like Jesus had mercy? Do we really care about those who are suffering? Do we really care about those who are under Satan's affliction? Maybe a spouse or a loved one is unexpectedly lost. Do we care for them? Do we love them? Those who have chronic physical pain, or maybe they're fighting with depression. Do we love those made in the image of God like Jesus loved those made in the image of God? Friends, Jesus was a merciful Savior, and his people should be as well. So we've seen the act of the merciful in verse 22. Matthew quickly then moves from the act of the merciful to the anxiety of the multitudes. Notice verse 23. Matthew records, all the people were astonished. Of course they were. They just saw Jesus cast out a demon. And the man who couldn't speak now speaks. And the man who couldn't see now sees. Of course, all the people were astonished. astonished. And they said, could this be the son of David? They ask a vital question. It's a question that we all should ask and must ask as well. Who is this man? Who is this man? Now the word order in Greek, unlike the NIV translation that I'm using here, actually points us towards a a negative meaning, right? Something like this. This cannot be the son of David, can it? This can't be the son of... This can't be the Messiah, can it? See, his miracles, the exorcism that he just performed, of course, that pointed them towards Jesus being Messiah. The Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would do miracles. And so there was some evidence, lots of evidence, that Jesus was the Messiah. But see, his overall ministry, his failure to engage the Roman Empire, led to some skepticism in their eyes. He, he didn't look at the part of the Messiah. Could, could this be the son of David? This can't be the son of David. Can it? I don't know if you remember the 1986 NBA dunk contest. I don't remember it much because I was only six, but I remember seeing the highlights of it as I grew older. And there was a, a, a contestant, an unexpected contestant in the 1986 NBA dunk contest, and his name was Spud Webb. You're familiar with Spud Webb? Some of you are smiling. You know who I'm talking about, right? If you looked at Spud Webb, you would look at him and you would say, there's no way in the world that he is going to be in the NBA dunk contest. That's because Spud Webb stood at a towering 5 feet 7 inches tall. Just to give you some reference, I'm about 5'11", so that's about 4 inches shorter than me. I guarantee you that I can't dunk a basketball, Um, (laughs) not even if the goal is 8 feet. I'm not sure I can dunk the basketball, right? Um, But he was entering the dunk contest. He didn't look the part. And so if you were to see the lineup, right, of all the guys that he was competing against before the contest started, you would look at him and you would say, this can't be the dunk contest winner, can it? Right? No way. 
And if you know the story, well, he, he did. He won the dunk contest because that guy could jump, right? We see the anxiety of the crowds. Jesus has just healed uh, an, a, a sick man, a demon-possessed man, an incredible miracle. And they say, could this really be? Could this really be the Messiah? Well, the anxious mention of Jesus' Messiahship by the multitudes then leads in verse 24 to an accusation by the malicious. Because the Pharisees hear this and don't think for one second that they won't comment when the people of Israel might even think for a moment that Jesus is their Messiah. Notice verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Friends, they're about to reach, they have reached, the point of no return. Jesus will comment on this shortly, but let's ponder their accusation for a moment. What is it that they are accusing Jesus of doing? They are essentially accusing Jesus of casting out the demon with God's power? No. With whose power? With Satan's power, right? This term Beelzebub in the Old Testament came to be a a way of the Jews speaking of, of Satan, the prince of demons. So they look at the evidence of this miracle... And they say, he didn't do it by the power of God. Jesus himself is possessed by Satan. Jesus, you must be possessed by the devil. And that's how you got the power. That's how you cast that demon out. Well, next, the longest part of this section is ahead of us. Because we see not only the act of the merciful, Jesus casts out the demon. We see the anxiety of the multitudes. Could this be the son of David? We see the accusation of the malicious. It's only by Beelzebub that he did this. And now in verses 25 through 37, the rest of the section, we see the answer of the Messiah. Right? Jesus is going to respond to this blasphemous accusation. We begin with the reasons. In verses 25 through 29, Jesus is going to give us three reasons. So as we read through the text, counting on your fingers, one, two, three, three reasons why their accusation that he cast out demons by the prince of demons was false. And then, after the reasons, we're going to see the results. In other words, What are the results, the spiritual results, for the Pharisees who blasphemed the Holy Spirit in such a way? There are going to be two results, okay? Three reasons, two results. Let's begin with reason number one, and we see it in verses 25 through 26. The first reason why Jesus said, that's fooey, right? I can't, that cannot be true, is it is illogical. Jesus says that simply doesn't make sense. Verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts. That's worth noting, right? Uh, they, they make this accusation and Jesus knows it. Right? He knows it. 
He knows their thoughts. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Friends, that is sound logic from the Son of God. Is it not? He says, friends, that doesn't make sense. That can't be true. It's illogical. He simply says it doesn't make sense for Satan, the, the, the prince of demons, to cast out other demons that work underneath him or for him. Because he uses an illustration. If a kingdom is warring against itself, that kingdom will not stand. Right? If a city is uh, infighting, it's not going to last. If a family is bickering and biting and divided, it's, it's not ultimately going to stand. It will fail. A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. This is true in many areas of life, and it was true uh, in, on my basketball team my high school year, my, my junior year, excuse me, in high school. So I was a junior, and it was my first year on varsity, so I was very excited to make the varsity team, even though I hardly got to play. Uh, I, I played the very important position of being like last at the bench, you know, and like handing the water down when the people who actually played needed a drink. It was an important role. You know, every team has to have people like me, okay? But I was a part of the team, and we were a good team because of my efforts and the efforts of those who played. And we were a good team. In fact, we, we won a lot of district games. But there was this division in our team. And I won't make this story long. But there were two guys, Jeff and Charlie. And Jeff and Charlie were both starters, and they didn't like each other. Why they didn't like each other, who knows? It goes back a long ways. But they butted heads, right? So Charlie was the shooting guard. Jeff was the, the small forward. Now, the, the two centers, right, our tall guys, they and Jeff were seniors. The point guard and Charlie were juniors. And there was this infighting. They didn't like each other. And so the team was divided. Charlie didn't want to pass to Jeff. Jeff didn't want to pass to Charlie. And you know what, you know what happens when people are selfish. Basketball is an unselfish game. And so we all knew it. We all sensed it. And of course our head coach sensed it as well. And so it came, it came to a head one day in practice where I don't know what happened, but Charlie and Jeff, maybe they, they, I don't know. Something happened, and they were just kind of pushing and shoving. And you know how that goes with 17- and 18-year-old boys. They push and they shove, right? And they're, they're talking smack to one another. And Coach says, that's it. You guys are done. This is what we're going to do. He says, guys, line up around center court. And we made a circle around center court. He said, Jeff, Charlie, you want to fight? Do it now. Go at it. So he put them in the middle of the, of the ring, if you will. And he says, fight. Just get it over with. We're done with this. And you know what happened? They're kind of like this, well, oh, shoot, I don't, I don't want to fight. You know, they, they didn't really want to fight. They said, well, if you don't want to fight, get over it and, and, and move on because we've got a good team. And we won district that year afterwards, you know. And it just illustrates this point. Jesus says, listen, it doesn't make sense. If, if, if Satan is, is truly indwelling me, I'm not going to cast out players on my own team, if you will. It just doesn't make sense. It's, it's illogical. But then he says it's, it's inconsistent. Verse 27. And 28. It's inconsistent. He says, if I, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. Here Jesus is calling out the inconsistent application of the Pharisees' accusation. See, they accused him of exorcism by Satan's power, but were they saying that? Were they accusing their own Jewish 
exorcists, maybe even those of the Pharisaic variety of casting out demons by Satan's power? No, of course they wouldn't say that. He says, you're being inconsistent. However, in verse 28, on the other hand, Jesus says, on the contrary, if I do this miracle by the power of the Spirit of God, which of course is the only logical explanation, then the only conclusion that you Pharisees can make is that I am the Messiah, that I am the King, and that I am offering you the kingdom, that the kingdom has come. Verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, it's a, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. You're inconsistent. And by the way, the kingdom of God has come upon you, and I am the king. But there's a third reason, and it is the fact that Jesus cast out the demon by the Spirit of God. He says, that fact is indisputable in verse 29. He says, or again, right? This is another argument. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Jesus argues that in the physical realm, in the physical world, right, only a stronger person can enter a person's house and bind up the homeowner and take his possessions, right? In the physical world, that's how it works. You have to be stronger in order to bind up someone and plunder their house, right? He says the same is true in the spiritual world. He, here he refers to himself. The strong man in this illustration is Satan. And Jesus says, I just entered into Satan's house and I bound him up and I'm taking his plunder home. He says, that's what I just did when I cast out that demon, right? He says, it's illogical, it's inconsistent, it's indisputable. And friends, let's pause and think about some truths for today for us. I see, uh, oh, uh, several of them here. The first is the main point. Jesus came to destroy Satan's kingdom. We see this very clearly in this exorcism and Jesus' teaching. He came, he was incarnate, his purpose was to destroy Satan's kingdom, at least in part. Friends, let's begin with this truth. Did you know that Satan has a kingdom? Did you know that Satan has a kingdom? The Bible speaks of Satan's kingdom in a variety of ways. For instance, he is called in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. There is a kingdom of the air, and Satan is ruler over it. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. Friends, did you know that there is a kingdom in this world, and that Satan sits on its throne? There is a system, a system of belief, a system of thought, a system of lifestyle, a system of morality, more like immorality. He is the prince of this world. His kingdom in Colossians 1.13 is called the dominion of darkness. Friends, Satan's kingdom is not one of light and truth, but of sin and darkness. And those who are not Christians, those who have not seen the light who have come to Christ, who is the light of the world, are said to be, and I quote the scriptures here, under the control of the evil one. Friends, let's just think about humanity for a moment. We are born into the kingdom of Satan. Did you know that? Friends, we aren't born into the kingdom of God. When we are burst forth from our mother's womb, we are born 
as Satan's slaves, if you will. We're under his rule, under his kingdom, in his world. And we must opt out of it by trusting in Christ. Paul writes that when we become Christians, that God rescues us from the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. Friends, if you are not a Christian, you are in the kingdom of Satan. You are in the kingdom of Satan. But when you trust in Christ, friends, if you are a Christian this morning, you are brought out of that dominion, out of that rule, and you are placed into the kingdom of Christ. Friends, Satan has a kingdom. We see in John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that one of the reasons that Christ came into our world was to destroy the works of Satan. John writes this, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Friends, did you catch that? If you do habitually, naturally, what is sinful, who is your spiritual father? It is, it is Satan. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so the question that we must think about and ask and answer is this, how does Jesus destroy this kingdom? How does Jesus destroy the works of Satan, which John identifies as sin, right? Well, in three ways. First of all, he does it by defeating the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, 23, that the wages of sin is what? I didn't, what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Physical death, which we all must experience, and spiritual death, the second death, in hell for eternity, which we must not all experience. If you trust in Christ, you don't have to. Spiritual death. That is our wage. We know what that is. You do a work, you do a job, and you get paid for what you have worked for, right? The Bible says that the works that we do in our natural state is sin. Sin and rebellion against God. We want autonomy from Him. We want to live life our own way, play by our own rules. And the wages that we get for doing that is spiritual death. Jesus defeats that by paying that penalty for us. On the what? On on the cross, right? He paid that penalty, which we justly deserve, on the cross. Not only does he pay for sin's penalty and thus defeat it in our lives, but he defeats sin by freeing us from the power of sin. The power of sin. The Bible says that when Christ died on the cross, that then a spiritual sense, Romans 6 tells us, that we died too. That there was a spiritual death date. Christian, did you know that? That there was a day that you died. Your old self died. And you were given a new nature. You were given the Holy Spirit. You were made a new creation in Christ with new desires to love God and to obey God and to repent when we sin. We are given the Holy Spirit to pursue holiness and obedience. And friends, Jesus in this way progressively frees us from sin's power. But rest assured, there will be a day when he will free us from the very presence of sin. Christian, did you know that? Did you know that there's going to be a day at the resurrection, when your spirit, if you're in heaven at that moment, will be reunited with your resurrected body. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like or be like, but it's going to be a glorious body like Christ's body. It's going to be a sinless body. And you will exist for the rest of eternity without the inkling or desire or inclination to ever sin again. And if you're a Christian, 
That's great news, right? Because we fight in this life. Christian, you fight sin in this life, and it gets wearisome. If you're not a Christian, you don't fight sin. You love sin. You go along with sin. You're in the Satan of uh, the kingdom of Satan. But if you are, you fight it. And friends, what great news that one day when Jesus returns and raises our body to new and eternal life, you will not deal with the presence of sin ever again. Friends, Christ has begun to plunder Satan's house in your life if you're a Christian. And he's going to continue that work unto glory. Amen? Amen. That is our hope. So we've seen three reasons why this accusation is, is, is ludicrous. But then we get to the hard stuff. Because starting in verse 30, we see two results. What are the spiritual results for a person who looks at Christ and says, he's possessed by Satan? Well, first of all, there is a denunciation that takes place, starting in verse 30. Christ begins with a simple spiritual truth. He says there can be no neutrality in one's relationship to him. Notice verse 30. Whoever is not with me is what? What's the word, church? Against me, right? If you're not with me, you're against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters, right? Then he follows up this truth about the impossibility of staying in neutral gear, if you will, with a dire warning. Verse 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Friends, we have lots of questions about Jesus' saying here, do we not? Dr. Ross helps us out. I think he's right on key when he says this. He says, Critical to this passage, then, is the meaning of blasphemy. In this passage, consciously arguing that the miracles of Jesus were done by the power of Satan is the primary meaning of blasphemy. It is the thoughtful, willful rejection of the work of the Spirit of God, even though there can be no other explanation of the healings of Jesus. He says, blasphemy against the Son and against the Spirit then means the complete and willful rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the crediting of his works to Satan. So the question that we all ask is, well, can this happen today? I mean, like, can this happen today? Well, Jesus says that if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. I think the answer is yes. And I think Ross hits it on the head when he says, for those who maintain that kind of opposition to Christ throughout their lives and never recant and repent and turn, there is no forgiveness. In other words, if you speak against Jesus by rejecting him as your Savior and his gospel, and you continue that hard-hearted opposition, rejecting the convicting and wooing power of the Holy Spirit until death, Friends, you will not be saved. And that leads us to a final truth for today. You are either for Christ or against Christ. Friends, there is no sitting on the fence, right? There is no not deciding. If you want to wait to trust in Christ, you have already decided to reject Christ, right? You receive him or you reject him. Friends, choose him before it's too late. I think of the scene from, I think it's the final Lord of the Rings, 
the final Lord of the Rings. And there are two little hobbit fellows, if you're familiar with the story. And they are captured by these talking trees called the Treants. And they are then pers- uh, seek to persuade the army of Treants to join the fight against the evil Dark Lord. And he speaks to the head tree int called Treebeard. And notice Treebeard's response. Let's watch this. And whose side are you on? Side. I am on nobody's side. Because nobody is on my side, little hog. Nobody cares for the woods anymore. I think of this scene because Jesus, how would Jesus take what Treebeard says? Side? Whose side am I on? What did he say? I'm on nobody's side. Friends, can that be true of Jesus? It cannot be. Jesus says that we can't do what Treebeard said. Not taking anybody's side is not an option. So we choose him now before it's too late, as the great C.S. Lewis warned about the moment when we die. And we slip into eternity if we have not trusted in Christ in this lifetime. He says this, and I quote, That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Friends, you must choose. You are for him or against him. Finally, not only is there a denunciation, but there is a condemnation in verse 33 and and, and moving forward. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what what the heart is full of. A good man brings good out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you, that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, or by, and by your words you will be condemned. Friends, the simple point of the illustration is this. Conduct, what we do and what we say, is revelatory of our character, of our spiritual state, right? So if you want to have a change of what you say and what you do, you have to have a radical change of heart. And Jesus says, To these Pharisees, your heart is evil. And that's why you say such blasphemous things. That's why you reject me. It's revelatory, right? He warns them. He warns them that they will have to give an account of these blasphemous words on the day of judgment. And now, friends, we see the the bitter irony. Jesus' critics thought that they were judging him with their words. But they were only bringing judgment upon themselves with their words. So the break, the break between Jesus and the religious leaders is now final. The nail, proverbial nail, is in the coffin. Dr. Stanley Toussaint points out, this incident then marks the great turning point in the life of Christ. From this point on to the cross, the nation is viewed in the Gospels as having rejected Christ as Messiah. The unofficial rejection by the leaders would become official when finalized at the cross. Indeed, the Pharisees had reached the point of no return. 
But the good news, friends, for us today is that we have not reached that point of no return. If we still have breath, if we have life, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. So I'll close with this. You are for him or you are against him. Which side do you want? Let's pray. Father, I pray even now that your Holy Spirit would be at work. And then if there's a a young child, a boy or a girl, a young man or a young woman, Father, we pray now that you would send your Spirit to convict them that they have rejected Christ as King and Savior. And that now, even now, that they would see that they have not reached the point of no return. That they can turn to your Son, Jesus. That they can stop rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, drawing them to you. And they can receive the work of the Holy Spirit, convicting them of sin, showing them who Jesus is. That he is the great Savior who paid the penalty for our sins, dying on the cross, rising from the dead three days later, ascending into heaven, and offering new and eternal life both now and forevermore for anyone, for anyone who would turn to him in repentance and faith, receiving him as Savior, and then submitting to him as Lord. Father, do this work. And for those of us who know which side we're on, we have made the decision to trust in Jesus as our Savior. Then may we rejoice knowing that he is doing this work of binding and casting out Satan in our lives and that through the power of the Spirit, he's setting us free from sin's power. And one day, one glorious day, we will be free even from the presence of sin. And so we long for this and ask that even so come now, Lord Jesus, quickly. And God's people said, Amen. See you next week, guys. Thanks. Actually, nope, stand. Don't leave. We've got a benediction. Stand. Come on. There we go. Can't leave without a benediction. I forgot. John chapter 3, verse 18. Let's read the words of Christ together, and then we can leave. Here we go. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now you're free to go. Amen.